All right, well, if you have your Bibles, uh, I ask that you would turn to the book of Obadiah. And <laughs> it might be a hard one to find. It's the smallest book in the Old Testament. So if you were to start in the New Testament, if you were starting the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and go left uh, and work your way through uh, some of the minor prophets into Jonah, Obadiah is just to the left of Jonah. Now, if you're go too far and you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel, Uh, go to the right of those, you'll get through Daniel and then Amos, and Obadiah is just to the right of Amos. And if you don't want to do that, just go to your table of contents, it'll tell you where in your Bible you can find it there. And then if you don't even want to do that, we have the words to the whole book of Obadiah in your worship guide uh, that is provided for you as well. So whatever way, in some way, shape, or form, whether in your Bible, whether on your phone or tablet or whether in the worship guide however it is just get the words to Obadiah in front of you that's the goal for our time together today but Obadiah the smallest book in the Old Testament we are as you turn there or as you find it just by way of a note we are spending one week in Obadiah today And we just finished Philippians last week, and then next week we are going to begin a series that will take us at least through the fall, and uh, Lord willing, certainly, uh, I believe all the way through January, with a brief break for Christmas where we'll we'll do something else, but um, we're going to begin a series through the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew Matthew chapter 5 through 7 is the Sermon on the Mount, and uh, I thought it timely for us to hear from our Lord Jesus Christ and hear what the call to discipleship looks like as we consider so many other calls that might be placed upon us in this time. What does it look like to follow Christ? What does it look like to trust Christ? What does it look like to know Christ? What does it look like to be a people that hope rests in Christ and not in anything else? What does it look like to be the people of Christ? Well, we're going to see that beginning next week in the Sermon on the Mount. But this week, Obadiah. You might look at it and you might consider it a question we could ask with Obadiah is, what does it mean to hope in Christ when it seems like there is nothing around us that should give us any reason to hope? Why should the people of God have hope when all things look hope? less well Obadiah helps us to answer this question but before we get into it let's read or or excuse me let me pray and then we will get into the book let me pray Lord as we come now and as we open your word we ask your mercy upon us we ask your provision for us in showing us your goodness and your might your grace your glory. If there be any here who feel lacking in hope, meet them in that hope. And Lord, glorify your name through the preaching of your word. Give us ears that are attentive. Give us hearts that are locked in. And help us, Lord, to be moved by you, be changed by you, rest deeply in you, We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
was about seven years ago. I was in a jet-lagged haze, foggy from what was probably 30 to 35 hours of having not slept. I had traveled halfway around the world. I was adjusting to a new time zone. When I should have been awake, I was asleep. When I should have been asleep, I was awake. And I had not yet checked into my hotel room, and I was disoriented. And understandably, because I'm six foot three, uh, in the midst of that travel halfway around the world, I did not sleep much at all. Yet here I was, for as much as I was yearning to get in bed in that hotel room that night, before that I was going to have dinner, and I was more locked in on what was going to be the conversation at dinner that night. So myself and a few other Christians were gathering together to have dinner. We found a quiet restaurant. We found a quiet corner in that quiet restaurant where we could have some privacy. And we sat down to talk. I had arrived in a part of the world where strong opposition to Christianity is part of the equation. The government opposes Christianity. Churches in this country, country have been forcibly shuttered and Christians have been hauled off to jails, to work camps, or to even worse. At this dinner, though, I was one of the, person, one of the people, the central guest at this dinner, was a lady who had come from a country that was even worse than this one that we had traveled to and were meeting in and having dinner in. She had come from a country where uh, she had recently become a Christian, and she had now come to this country to study the Bible and to learn in order that she might go home to her home country and share the hope of the gospel, the hope of Christianity, with those that were most dear to her. But going home for her would bring significant challenges. Some experts speculate that when someone becomes a Christian in her home country, a clock begins and the average life expectancy for a Christian in this country is but two years, roughly. And here I was speaking with this woman, talking with her about our shared faith. And I remember sitting at that table thinking, what do I say to give hope? What do I say to encourage this sister in the faith? What do you say to somebody when their heart is full of Christ, but their future is empty of promise? Or of any, let me say, of any worldly promise. Now, we don't face that today in America, do we? We don't face that fear of darkening storm clouds, of foreboding, of not worrying if we could be arrested for the faith. We don't face that. Now, it's possible that we do face our own sets of challenges. Maybe you face a workplace that is growing more and more opposed to the Christianity that you believe and profess. Maybe you face the threats of social ostracization from loved ones even who don't understand why you follow a Lord who demands so much of you. Whatever it might be, and even if we do face growing cultural hostility towards the faith, where does our hope lie as the people of God? 
Where do we turn? Well, when opposition to the church comes, we can endure in hope because we know that God will judge those who oppose his people and he will establish his kingdom. Let me say that again. For the Christian, for the church, we know that when opposition to the church comes, we know that we can endure in hope because God will judge those who oppose his his people and he will establish his kingdom. This is what Obadiah shows us. Obadiah tells us of a people who faced incredibly harsh opposition because they were the people of God. And Obadiah speaks hope to them. But he speaks a hope to them that is greater than possible life expectancies because, simply because you profess the name of Christ. Obadiah speaks a hope that is greater than turned backs or pushed out of social circles because of your faith in the risen Lord Jesus and what he commands us in fidelity to him and to his word. Obadiah speaks a hope that is greater even than when our bodies are wasting away and our days are few. But specifically, Obadiah speaks a hope that is greater than those who would seek to squelch that hope that the people of God has. So we're going to see three things about how Obadiah gives to the people of God comfort in the face of opposition. In verses 1 through 9, we're going to see how Obadiah shows us that God acts on behalf of his people. And then in verses 10 to 14, we're going to see how God knows the plight of his people. And then in verses 15 to 21, we're going to see how God promises a reward and a hope that transcends the agony and the despair that his people are facing. So God acts, God knows, God promises. Let's read first verses 1 through 9. We're going to see how God acts on behalf of his people. How God acts on behalf of his people. And if you'll forgive me real quick, doing a little housekeeping, because this wind is no joke. All right, verses 1 through 9. The vision of Obadiah, verse 1. Now, Obadiah, real quick, let's pause right there, actually. Obadiah is the prophet who wrote this. We don't know a lot about him. The, the word Obadiah just simply means servant of the Lord. Now, it was a common name around when we think he wrote, so we don't think that this was somebody who was just calling themselves Obadiah. We think it's likely somebody who was named Obadiah. And he had this prophetic vision given to him by the Lord, and now he is speaking it towards uh, people of Edom, who is a nation about south-southeast of the people of Israel. So they shared a border. Edom was east of Israel. And so it says in verse 1, The vision of Obadiah, thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. Now, the people of Edom, they, were, they had a long history with the people of Israel. If you stretch it all the way back to the book of Genesis, when you had Jacob and Esau, two brothers, who, uh, uh, that's their own story, but the people of Jacob were the people of Israel, the people of, Edom, of Esau eventually became Edom. So they were people who knew conflict with one another, they knew 
disagreement. They knew squabbles. They knew uh, uh, issues that would arise and, and tensions would flare between the countries and then they'd go down. They, they, they knew centuries of discord together, but they also knew at times peace. They knew at times relationship with one another. And so Edom and Israel, they had their hardships, but now God is pronouncing judgment upon Edom because they had turned their backs on the people of the Lord. And so you see the Lord saying, thus says the Lord concerning Edom, we have heard a report from the Lord and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So first, the judgment of God upon Edom. God acts against Edom. Three ways we see this judgment. We see his judgment against the pride of Edom. We see his judgment against the uh, security of Edom. And we see his judgment against the supposed self-sufficiency of Edom. So first against the pride of Edom in verses 2 through 4. Verse 1, we've, we've had a messenger come along. And this messenger apparently is going to go to nations that surround Edom. And say, hey, rise up. We're going to go overtake the Edomites. Rise up, let us go against her for battle. And then verse 2, the Lord says, Behold, Edom, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. And he says this in part because why? Verse 3, the pride of your heart has deceived you. And so real quick pause here. God says he's going to make them small. He's going to make them despised. And he's going to do this because of their pride. Where they think themselves so great, he is going to bring them down. A reckoning is coming. Now he says, I'm going to bring you down. Your pride has deceived you, verse 3. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? God says, well, I will. Okay? And, he, and, and now the people of Edom, the, the land that, was, that they lived in, it was rocky, it was mountainous. It was, it was you know, from a, military, from a military standpoint or from a protection standpoint, it was quite advantageous. It was this land that, that they could build homes in, in literally in the clefts of rocks on the high ground, protected from threats that were lower than them. And so where they have this security as they think they know it, you who live in the clefts of, rock as, uh, clefts of the rock, as verse 3 says, in your lofty dwelling, you say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Look at the imagery here. 
They're in the clefts of rock. And then verse 4, the Lord says, Though you soar aloft like the eagle, you think of yourselves highly, flying above all others. Though your nest is set among the stars, even. From there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. The Lord tells Edom, and He tells all of us, no matter how high you think you are, no matter the heights that your pride and your arrogance your feelings of security may be, I, the Lord, can bring you down. The Lord promises to judge the pride of Edom. And then he says, going on and judging their seeming sense of self-sufficiency, their their, their seeming sense of strength that they have. He says to them, if thieves came to you, in verse 5, if thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed. Would they not only steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. It was common in that day and age in an agrarian and agricultural society that people would have crops, they would have grapes, they would have things, and occasionally thieves would come and they'd steal a little, or they would steal uh, part of their crops, they would steal part of their grapes. But even then they would leave gleanings, they would leave, they would not be able to wipe it all out. Yet God says, I will wipe it all out in my judgment upon you, Esau. But look at how he is going to wipe them out in verse 7. As he judges their security, he's going to say, all your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. What God is going to reveal to the people of Edom is that though they felt they had security from their neighbors, those whom they shared meals with, those whom they shared a positive relationship with, he is going to use those very neighbors to bring about their destruction. This echoes back to verse 1, a messenger is going out amongst the nations to bring their destruction. Now why does the Lord do this? Why does the Lord judge nations? Why does the Lord raise up armies of peoples that aren't even His people? Why does the Lord raise up those who will bring about the destruction of other nations? Why does he act in this way? Well, one thing that Obadiah shows us is that the Lord is serious about addressing injustice. He's serious about addressing oppression. He's serious about addressing violence. He's serious about addressing wrongdoing. And so one thing that Obadiah, and really actually so many of the Old Testament prophets, shows us, is that as we cry out in a world of injustice, as we cry out in a world of oppression, as we cry out for justice, and as we cry out for rightness, Obadiah and so many Old Testament prophets show us, yes, God hears these cries. God says, yes, this is not right. Yes, this must be corrected. There must be judgment. There must be righteousness that will come. There must be a righting of these wrongs that are enduring at the hands 
of those who work evil. So many prophets in the Old Testament hold this up and say, this needs correction. And God says, yes, it does. But strangely, what also happens here is that the prophets, Obadiah, Obadiah, as well as prophets throughout the Old Testament, shows us that where we cry out and say, God, will you bring correction to this? It shows us that God is the only one that can bring correction to this. So as we look at a world that is spiraling in its discord, in its dismay, in its cries of injustice, in its cries of oppression, we look at it and we join in saying, yes, something must be done. But it also shows us that only God can bring it finally and fully and completely. Now, this doesn't spur us towards inaction. No, the fact that we see the cries of the oppressed and we see that God hears these and he comes to them, this ought to spur us to be a people of pursuing righteousness, pursuing justice, pursuing uh, a correction of oppression. But we must see that finally and fully and completely it can only be brought by the Lord and the Lord alone. Because the Lord acts fully in power. And read verse 8. He says, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. So the Lord basically says in verses 8 and 9, I'm going to destroy your wisdom and I'm going to destroy your strength. All of the pillars that you have trusted in are going to be ripped out from you and I will destroy you. He's going to rip out their wisdom, their might, their allies that surround them, even the security that they think the land that they live on provides for them. What this shows us is that no matter how secure one thinks they are, they cannot escape from the judgment of God upon them. But why does that judgment come? When I sit and I talk at that table with that woman who has become a believer and is going back home to a nation, and particularly to live under a government that would kill her when they find out that she is a believer in Jesus Christ, what is the hope there? What is the hope when our hearts see injustice, when our hearts see oppression, when our hearts cry out for righteousness? May I say to you that the love of God, though it is in one way our hope, our hope is in the justice of God. It's one thing for me that I don't I don't quite understand. I understand the sentiment behind it when people say, oh, God is love. The Bible tells us God is love. But when people try to make God only love, that is when we lose touch with reality and the cries of this earth that is groaning. Do we not look around and say that we need a God of justice? Do we not look at atrocities that have been, cre- that have been uh, uh, doled out in centuries past and we, look at, and we look at how they flow and they flow and they flow and we see that, that where is the rightness in that And we cry out for somebody to bring judgment. What Obadiah is going to show us, and we're going to see going forward, is that God's judgment is actually the hope for his people. So why was Edom being judged? 
Why was Edom being judged by God? Was it because he woke up on the wrong side of the bed that day and just had some extra power and he wanted to smite some people? No. Edom was being judged because of her evil and her wickedness against the people of God. Look at verse 10. Because of your violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. So what had they done to Jacob? Well, let's read along. And Jacob, there is Israel. Okay, so Jacob, Esau, stretching back to Genesis, Edom, Israel. Israel had faced some kind of calamity and Edom had done violence to them. What is it? Well, let's read along. Apparently. Armies had invaded Israel and Edom did not come to her aid. But as verse 11 says, on the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and and, and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Verses 11 and 12, pause real quick. It's almost like the people of Edom looked on at the suffering of Israel as Babylonian invaders ransacked Jerusalem. They looked on and then they laughed. They looked on and then they gloated. But it gets even worse. As they gloated, as they laughed, as they boasted. Verse 13, do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Verse 13, the, the, where verse 11 says the people of Edom originally stood aloof, stood off to the side and watched evil flow through the streets of Jerusalem and ransack the city. By verse 13, the Edomites have come in and said, well, let's get some for ourselves. And then the most heinous of evil is in verse 14. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. As the people of Israel flowed out of Jerusalem seeking refuge, seeking relief, seeking help as their city burned, as their homes were ransacked, the Edomites caught them and turned them over to their Babylonian captors. They did not find refuge. They found rejection. They did not find hope. They found hate as they were pushed away and pushed into the arms of those who sought their destruction. Obadiah holds up for us the truth that God sees the agonies that his people endure at the hands of those who seek their harm and their destruction. And he is not casually off to the side saying, man, I'm sorry you caught that bad break. But he is storing up wrath for those who would harm his people. And it is possible that you carry abuse, that you carry harm, that you carry 
unspeakable violence that has been committed against you. And you don't know whether anybody knows or you don't know whether anybody cares. Obadiah tells you that your God sees it. Your God knows it. Your God cares. And your God is storing up wrath upon those who would harm his people. So may God meet you and give you some form of solace in that. And may the church be a place that is not a place of turning you away or looking off in an aloof manner, but may the church meet you in comfort and in peace and be a means whereby the arms of God are open wide to you to come in from the storm. You know, this passage connects with us it it collides with us in a few ways It, it, it 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 holds the edomites up as a warning to our prideful hearts lest we think ourselves or think more highly of ourselves and lest we think that we are soaring above like eagles and even our nest is in the stars obadiah says to us in preview even of the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, when he said, he who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So Obadiah beckons us away before it is too late from prideful arrogance that looks haughtily upon the suffering of those around us. But Obadiah also beckons us to look upon our God and see his judgment as a means of rescue for his people. So God acts because he sees the sufferings of his people. God knows the agonies, the abuses that his people endure either just because of the sinfulness of this world or specifically for the name of Christ. And then God promises that the day of the Lord is near. So the Lord says to the Edomites, He gives this judgment upon them. He tells them what not to do. And then He says in verse 15, For the day of the Lord is near. But here's the unique turn. He doesn't say the day of the Lord is near for the Edomites. He says in verse 15, the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. So verse 15 is really odd. Look at this. It's really odd because he's he's addressing the Edomites. But then he says the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. And then he brings it back in and addresses you, the Edomites. Verse 15, as you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. It's like verse 15 is this hinge, this connection point between verses 1 through 14 and the rest of Obadiah's prophecy where now the focus is not going to turn just to the Edomites, but towards all nations that would oppress 
the people of God. And God says the day of the Lord is near for all of them. Therefore, Edom is just an illustration of all who would oppose the people of God and seek their destruction. So the day of the Lord is near. Now, what is the day of the Lord? We read this and say, okay, it sounds cool. The day of the Lord is a day in which God promises to bring about his divine judgment, his divine wrath upon all who deserve it. But in that judgment, in that wrath, God also promises to bring about blessing and goodness and his very presence, his knowable goodness, his presence with his people, not in judgment and in wrath, but in provision and in care and in mercy. So the day of the Lord is a day when the people of God will rejoice in him and be secure in him and that those who oppose his people and seek their harm will face wrath and judgment. So all throughout the Bible, the day of the Lord is held up as something that is near to come. For the Edomites, it came just but a few decades later. If you were to try to situate yourself on a timeline in the Old Testament, it came when uh, Ezra and Nehemiah happened, and the uh, people of God were sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild their city that had been ransacked and destroyed. And in this rebuilding, judgment came for those who opposed the Lord. And so the Lord says in verse 16, For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. They will be wiped out as they drink the cup of God's wrath. But then listen to verse 17 in Mount Zion. There shall be those who escape and it shall be holy and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. The house of Joseph a flame. The house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau for the Lord has spoken. The way in which the Lord works across the spans of history, across the spans of time. Nations rise, nations fall. The Lord preserves his church. The Lord keeps his people. Understand this, brothers and sisters, this morning. It's when you look at our day and age. Specifically, when you look at our country, you could look at it a few ways, and some people say it's the worst it's ever been, or it could become the worst it could ever become. And yeah, sure, it could. History tells us it kind of happens to all nations. But also, you look at things, and, and, and I kind of say, well, America, for as great of a country as it is, it, it's had its share of conflict, it's had its share of discord before. We had the Civil War. There was a time, I can't remember when, early 1800s, when one senator on the floor of the U.S. Senate shot another senator. So, we've known discord. There are going to be voices over the next few months, over the next few years, over the next few decades that try to tell you specifically in order to earn your vote, in order to earn your support, they will try to tell you that the future of Christianity is at stake in how you vote or how you participate in this democracy that we share, how you steward this trust that we have. 
And how we vote will affect things. Who's elected does have effect on our lives. Don't get me wrong. But here, verses 17 and 18, and see the Lord wiping out Edom and understand that our Lord God will preserve and protect His church no matter what may come. Our hope as Christians is not on the ballot. It cannot be voted in or out. It rests in the sovereign Lord who promises to preserve his people and judge in wrath those who would destroy his church. So let that give hope to your heart over the next few months. And then... As you move from the next few months to the next trillion years, allow verses 19, 20, and 21 to give hope to you. These verses are kind of an elaboration on verse 17, but they're a picture of the eternal hope that we share as Christians of the time when God, after He has judged all who opposed His people, will bring His people to His holy temple to enjoy and to delight in Him forever. Now there's geographic references here, and you might be unfamiliar with some of these places throughout Israel, throughout uh, Judah, but but just understand that that Obadiah is just going around the whole nation, picturing a, a bringing in of the people of God, bringing them in from the darkness, bringing them in from the despair, and bringing them around the throne of God as a place in which... We can hope. So verse 19, those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath, and the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negev, And Savior shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The Lord will bring His people home. Even when home is destroyed, He rebuilds. The Lord Jesus reigns over His creation. He will bring His church to Himself. And our hope, when the storm clouds are growing dark, When the opposition grows severe, our responsibility is to go forward in love as that woman I sat across the table from was ready to go home to share the hope of the gospel with those who needed that hope. And even as the future does not look bright, even for the name of Christ, eternity does look bright. The kingdom of Christ will reign and the hope that we have No matter what opposition may come, our hope rests in the Lord who will come. In the day of the Lord, judgment will be our rescue. And we will see the Lord Jesus Christ who was judged in our place for our sins, but who will reign supreme in all things. Let's pray. We say all glory to Christ who will gather His church. We say all might, all wonder, all praise. 
Lord God, you will build your kingdom. You will judge those who seek the destruction of your church. And you will reign in all things. Give us perspective to view our days in hope in you. Give us confidence to trust you in all things. Lord, draw us near to you. When the days are dark, when the night is long, when those we seek refuge from turn their back and seek our harm, let us run to you where the refuge never runs dry. And let us look to you where your presence will be with us for all of eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.